So, good afternoon, ladies and gentlemen. My name is Martin Smith, and it is my pleasure to welcome you to the Sheldonian Theatre on this alumni weekend to hear the Chancellor's keynote lecture. Si monumentum requiris circumspice. I say this partly out of respect for the old tradition that calls for graduates of this university to say at least a few words in Latin to each other whenever they meet, <laughs> especially in this hallowed space. But I say it also because these are the words that are inscribed on the memorial to Sir Christopher Wren, erected by his son at St. Paul's Cathedral. If you seek his monument, look around you. I'm sure you will agree that this epithet applies equally to this other Wren masterpiece, which has been a jewel in Oxford's crown for nearly 350 years. Which brings me to the title of today's talk by the Chancellor. What next? Surviving in the 21st century. This is a particularly interesting choice of topic but it, because it implies correctly, in my view, that the most pressing concerns facing the human race at the moment are less those of the next 350 years, but more those of the next 90. It was these very concerns that led me and my family some five years ago to approach the university with an idea for a new school aimed at addressing the deeply troubling environmental issues which currently threaten us. The particular theme which we proposed for this new institution was to focus on establishing a multidisciplinary research and teaching capability aimed at linking Oxford's extraordinary array of world-class academics working in the environmental field with the organizations best equipped to deal with these problems, namely public and private enterprises around the world. The university, and particular, particularly if I may say the chancellor, responded to our proposal with great enthusiasm. After a year's intensive planning, we were fortunate enough to recruit Sir David King, the retiring government chief scientific advisor, to be the first director of the newly named Smith School of Enterprise and the Environment. We opened our doors in October 2008. Three years later, we have almost 25 full-time and part-time academics in the school, working with many others throughout the university on a wide range of projects. These include the future of energy, transportation, sustainable finance, sustainability in the developing world, and many others. Each of these projects is being developed with a government or a major corporate partner. Arising from this work, the school has produced several dozen peer-reviewed research papers on a wide range of environmental topics. We run a series of seminars with speakers from all over the world. We have created an important annual environmental conference, and we are beginning to contribute to several graduate degree programs within the university. If you're interested in learning more, I would encourage you to Google us at Smith School Oxford and to get in touch if you would like to hear more about or contribute to our activities. I'm delighted that so many of you have elected to come here this afternoon to hear Lord Patton, our Chancellor. I'm even more impressed that you are here, having seen the Alumni Weekend program, that you have eschewed a number of extraordinarily seductive alternative attractions to attend this event. Two, two in particular stand out. The first is, 
a history of the hall in 10 objects. This being my own college, Teddy Hall, I have to assume that the objects will include at least a cricket bat and a ball of some description. <laughs> the other is a course in tutored cognac tasting <laughs> at St. Peter's College, conducted by the good folks at Heinen Company. Well, Chris Patton is, of course, uniquely qualified to address us on today's topic, given his long and extraordinarily distinguished career in public life, including a spell as Secretary of State for the Environment in Margaret Thatcher's administration, when he introduced and steered through Parliament the 1990 Environmental Protection Act. Uh, in 2008, he wrote a book with the same title as today's talk, containing an analysis of our life and times which prompted Jonathan Sumption of The Spectator to speculate that, but for the electors of Bath, quote, his innate curiosity and objectivity would have combined with his strong sense of moral purpose to make a formidable prime minister in an age in which the electorate has come to value management over ideology. In response to that, I can only say that the country's loss is Oxford's gain. So, excellent as the products of Messrs. Hine and Company undoubtedly will be, I feel confident that the Chancellor will provide us with an even finer vintage in his talk today. Ladies and gentlemen, I would ask you to welcome our Chancellor, Lord Patton of Barnes. Thank you very much indeed, uh, Martin. Um, Martin has been one of the most uh, generous and intelligent donors to Oxford. Uh, the work that his school does is uh, extremely impressive and very important. Uh, and we're all very grateful to him uh, for that, not least for encouraging us to think outside silos. Um, Listening to Martin's introduction, um, I thought that maybe um, I might uh, not listen to myself this afternoon, but go after St. Peter's College, where <laughs> <laughs> it sounds as though the boat is going to be pushed out. Um, but since you've all come, um, I'd better stay myself. It's rather curious um, for me to uh, speak uh, in this great temple um, this way round. Uh, normally um, I'm speaking from up there um, and speaking in a good deal of Latin uh, but um, it's still me even this way round uh, as Boris Johnson would say Semper Eadem. Three years ago, two and a half years ago, when I wrote the book that um, Martin referred to, What Next? Uh, I sent a copy to the Chancellor of Cambridge University, uh, the Duke of Edinburgh, and he sent back a very polite handwritten reply saying, what next, he said, uh, when you're my age, there's only one answer. <laughs> I, 
I read the book partly in response to a line in a play and partly in response to another book. The line in a play is, I've been to see a, in the West End a production of Waiting for Godot um, and I'd forgotten that wonderful line, you're on earth, there's no cure for that. Secondly, I'd read a book by Martin Rees, um, then the master of Trinity. You know Trinity, Trinity Cambridge. Um, it was Rab Butler's uncle who, like him, who was master, was master said, uh, I've always thought that Jesus, in a very real sense, was a Trinity man. <laughs> Martin Rees, the astronomer royal, a great physicist and moralist, wrote a book called The Last Century, The Final Century. And when he originally wrote it, he put a question mark after the title. Uh, his publishers, thinking of sales, took the question mark out. When the American edition was published, uh, the book was published as The Final Hour. <laughs> and Martin Rees's thesis was that we had about a 50-50 chance of getting through this century. And those seem to me to be rather bad odds. Uh, I've got, as um, one or two of you may, um, loads of grandchildren, and I think the odds should be a bit better than that. And I do, despite the present fin de siècle mood in Europe and America, I do decline to accept that the world we're living in is so much more dangerous than the world has ever been before. My first term at university coincided with the Cuban Missile Crisis in 1962 when the world appeared to be teetering on the edge of nuclear Armageddon. In those days, the peace was um, achieved, was maintained by a strategy described in Dr. Strangelove language as mutually assured destruction, or to use the very accurate acronym MAD. The notion was that um, we wouldn't attack the Soviet Union because we knew that if we attacked them, they'd obliterate us, and the other way around. I don't think that things are as dangerous today as that. My worry 
is that while we know what we need to do in order to survive, we at present appear to lack the political leadership and the international political capacity to rise to the challenge, which is a rather different point. 1962 was one of those moments when many people thought the world had changed. Even more so, 1989, with the fall of the Berlin Wall and the extraordinary pace with which the Russian's European empire was dismantled. <clears throat> William Walgrave, the uh, outgoing chairman of the Rhodes Trust, fellow of all souls, provost of Eton, was at the time the minister for Europe in Margaret Thatcher's government. Never an easy thing uh, <laughs> to be. And William visited um, Berlin in the late summer of 1989, in discharge of his ministerial duties. And the first night he was there, a young East Berliner was shot trying to escape from East Berlin to West Berlin. Uh, and William said to his advisors and the advisors in the West Berlin mayor's office, we must make a fuss about this. And they said, really, Minister, we have much better ways of dealing with these issues. We have channels of communication with the authorities in East Berlin and East Germany, which will enable us to make it less likely that this will happen again. Well, as William points out, within weeks, certainly months, there was no wall, there was no East Berlin, there was no East Germany, all swept into history's ash can. So spectacular were those events that uh, a, an American-Japanese political scientist, Francis Fukuyama, wrote a book called The End of History. By which, to be fair to him, he didn't mean the end of interesting times. What he meant was that we'd seen the triumph of political and economic liberalism. That there wasn't an argument anymore about the efficacy of markets. There wasn't an argument anymore about the best form of governance. Those arguments were finished, over, decided in favor of, as it were, Karl Popper and Adam Smith. Well, not everybody thought that. Three or four years later, another American political scientist, Samuel Huntington, wrote a book called The Clash of Civilizations, in which he argued that maybe we wouldn't see again wars between states but that we would see uh, 
wars between, clashes between different ethnicities, uh, different language groups, different cultures, that the politics of identity would be hugely important in shaping our futures. And a lot of people thought that 9-11 confirmed that. President Bush said famously uh, about those events that night fell on a different world. So we were launched into the war on terrorism, as though you ever fight wars on proper nouns. <laughs> and uh, the efficacy of that argument, sorry, the veracity of that argument was, I suppose, um, most fundamentally challenged with the Arab Spring this year. All those uh, Arab League tyrannies whose uh, despotic leaders we'd supported swept away, not by the West, not by America or Europe, but swept away by their own people, by kids, by uh, social networking 20 and 25 year olds without jobs. Was that predictable? Who predicted that? Oddly, you could arguably see it coming. There's a very good Financial Times writer on the uh, Arab world called David Gardner who came here two years ago uh, and wrote at St. Anthony's a book called The Last Chance um, in which he sort of said what was going to happen. And some of you may have read a book by uh, an Egyptian dentist, sounds surprising, who wrote uh, a best-selling novel in the Arab world called The Yakubian Building, Allah Al-Aswani. It's a book that proves, if proof were needed, that security services never have a sense of humor. <laughs> because plainly, if they had, they wouldn't have allowed the book to be published. It's part satire, part metaphor, part extraordinary social commentary, which demonstrated the rottenness of the system in Egypt. But none of that uh, predicted. So maybe we should be a bit careful about prediction. Maybe we should today be careful of the uh, Goldman Sachs world in which apparently the line in Brazil, Russia, India, China, South Africa is going to continue on and on up the graph paper and right out of the top. A former master of St. Peter's College, uh, the father 
of the rector of Exeter College, the government's senior economic advisor, Sir Alec Cancross, had a limerick, I can't remember it exactly, but the, the uh, thrust of the limerick was that a trend is a trend until it bends. And the smart thing is to know when the bends are coming. So instead of trying to predict what the century may bring, what do we know about today? Well, what we know, first of all, is that perhaps the greatest international challenge in the 21st century is to cope with the consequences of the 20th century. We've seen a fourfold increase in our population over the last 100 years. Now stands as at 6.9 billion. It will increase, so it's thought, by 2.1 2 billion by 21, by 2150, or by 2050, uh, and all but 100 million of that 2.1 billion, 2.2 billion increase uh, will be in poor countries. The only rich country in the top 10 where population is now increasing is the United States. Most of that population increase in very poor countries, and most of those very poor countries face political instability and considerable environmental stress. We know that we also have to cope with the consequences of a century in which water use increased ninefold. So that uh, if you go and talk to geo-strategists in Indian think tanks now, they tell you about the war games that they've been thinking about in relation to uh, the possible conflict over water resources between China and India. The six largest rivers in China and India all rising on the Tibetan plateau and with the amount of water available uh, being threatened uh, by, uh, by glacier melt um, and by uh, growing water stress in both countries. We know that the people, number of people living in cities over the last century has increased 13 times. When uh, China when China saw the arrival of Mao and uh, a communist leadership in, the, in 1949, there were five Chinese cities with a population of more than a million. Now there are 40, there were 40 actually by the end of the last century, uh, against six in Japan, and by the middle of the century it's reckoned that a billion people in China will live in cities. Energy use 
energy use has increased 13 times because industrial output has increased 40 times. And uh, a point which Martin's school is looking at, carbon dioxide emissions have increased 17 times. Posing probably the biggest issue for diplomacy, arguably since Versailles, and probably bigger than Versailles. So we don't have to predict in knowing that some of the biggest challenges that we face are because of the successes of the last century and the progress made in the last century. Second thing we know is that we've just been through the second great period of globalization in the history of, of the world. The first was in the late 19th century, second half of the 19th century, and was partly a consequence of the policies and the leadership of this country. We must be the only country in the world in which an industrial city named a concert hall out of an after an economic principle, free trade. And thanks to the opening up of markets around the world, thanks to technology, the uh, steamship, trains, uh, telegrams, and thanks to the opening up of the American Midwest with Chicago at its heart, we saw that ex explosion in trade and output in the last decades of the 19th century, uh, a deflationary boom which produced the world which J.M. Keynes wrote about in the economic consequences of the peace. We've just been through a similar period with similar causes. First of all, technology, containerization, air transport, breakthroughs in information technology. Secondly, the opening up of markets, and particularly the openness of markets in America and Europe to goods made in Asia. And thirdly, the fact that in the 1980s with China and 90s with India, uh, two and a half billion people joined the world economy as India and China opened themselves to the rest of the world. Extraordinary um, importance uh, for all of us. Until uh, 1820, India and China represented 50% of the world's GDP. China 33%, India 
16, 17%. In China's case, that figure had fallen to 5% by the 1950s, 60s, and 70s, partly because of what happened in the 19th century, not least China being ripped apart by the colonial powers, partly because of the Japanese invasion of China in the 20th century, the fighting between warlords, and the insanity of the policies pursued by, by Mao Zedong. From 33% at the beginning of the Industrial Revolution to 5% by the 1970s and 80s. In India, the case was, was pretty similar. Those figures have been transformed by, above all, GDP per head in India and China, which are the two largest countries in the world, growing rapidly. In the 1990s, a GDP per head in China tripled, and it tripled again in uh, the period since 2000. Uh, last year, China was exporting in a day what China exported in the whole of 1979, which was the first year that I visited China. India now invests more in the United Kingdom than the United Kingdom invests in India. China will be the largest economy in the world by sometime, I guess, in the 2020s. But by 2040, probably, uh, India will be the largest uh, population in the world uh, and the second largest population will be Chinese pensioners. And that demographic difference between India and China is one of the things which both countries are going to be challenged by uh, in the future. It's a world, something else we know, which you can very properly describe as post-Western. Asia no longer has to define modernity in Western terms. But it doesn't necessarily mean that the United States and Europe have had it. Europe for, Europe, for example, whatever its problems, Europe with 7% of the world's population still produces probably 21-22% of the world's output. And there are serious problems confronting both India and China. India is seeing the steady federalization of its polity. Uh, India suffers from the criminalization 
of politics, from terrible levels of corruption, which have raised questions right across the board about the nature of representative democracy in India, about the integrity of the legislature and of the judiciary and the bureaucracy. There are three chief justices in India today uh, facing criminal charges. India also has terrible infrastructure problems. And yet, and yet, India has pockets of extraordinary prosperity and sophistication um, surrounded by terrible poverty uh, and awful corruption. Gujarat, where in 2002, uh, 2,000 Muslims were killed in race riots. Uh, Gujarat, with 5% of India's population, uh, is responsible for 16% of India's output and 22% of its exports. India has several multinational companies with global brands uh, against which other, country, other companies benchmark themselves. Tata, Reliance, Rambaxi, Infosys, uh, and many others. China also faces uh, huge problems despite its extraordinary economic achievements with a 1,600% increase in its exports to America over the last 15 years. China faces, as does India, huge environmental challenges. China faces the problem of how to rebalance its economy, moving from substantial dependence on uh, manufactured exports to greater investment in uh, domestic infrastructure and greater encouragement of consumption. Uh, China extraordinarily in the decade after 1997 when growth was surging saw incomes as a proportion of the economy fall from 53% to 40%. It's an extraordinary definition of communism. And people understandably ask themselves an existential question about China whether China can continue to open up the economy with social and technological change while keeping an iron grip on its politics. How will the Chinese leadership manage the political transitions which are going to be necessary at some time in the future? With the United States political system gridlocked, with Europe obsessed with its own problems which it fails to solve, where will we look to for leadership in dealing with 
some of the issues that I've mentioned already, and in dealing with the issues which you can describe in a portmanteau phrase as representing the dark side of globalization. We created after the Second World War a system of international governance through the United Nations and the Bretton Woods institutions, which, and the European Union, it has to say, which helped remarkably uh, the recovery from conflict, the stabilization of the world, and the growth in prosperity. But at precisely the moment when we clearly need greater international cooperation, those institutions established in the 1940s have uh, started to fall to pieces. They clearly lack moral and political authority. And it's extremely difficult to see who is going to try to recreate them or who is capable of providing the leadership that we need in order to cope with uh, the international problems that I'm describing. Organized crime, human trafficking, epidemic disease, drugs, the arms trade, above all, climate change, all those and other problems which demonstrate that even though we continue to assert the primacy of national sovereignty and the primacy of nation states as the main building blocks in international society, we know perfectly well that the boundaries of nation states are porous when it comes to trying to deal with these problems. So how do we create the structures uh, to deal with these challenges, which are made all the greater by the fact that in today's world, the main threats come not from strong states, but from weak states, from states which have failed or are failing. Zimbabwe, Somalia, Burma, and alas, increasingly, some states in Central and South America like Mexico. Are we going to see the leadership come from the United States, where, as I said uh, earlier, the political system is gridlocked? Are we going to see the leadership come from Europe? From Europe, which has designed a currency union, uh, which has fallen apart or is falling apart uh, because of the difficulties of running monetary policy with one hand and fiscal policy with another. And there's a deeper problem, I think, in Europe and North America, which is 
exemplified by a remark made uh, last year by the chairman of the Eurozone finance ministers, who's the Prime Minister of Luxembourg, not, you might think, um, the most significant player in international politics, but nevertheless, one who it seems to me spoke for most of the others. He was being pressed on why it is that uh, uh, Europe has failed to implement a series of measures to make Europe more competitive in relation to China and India and other Asian powers. And he replied by saying, it's not, he said, that we don't know what to do. Of course we know what to do. But we just don't know how, if we did it, we'd get re-elected. <laughs> so if not America, if not Europe, are we expecting the leadership to come from China or India? It seems to me to be rather doubtful. But we have to make the effort. And in making the effort, I think that uh, uh, two things should encourage us. First of all, as I said earlier, we actually know what needs to be done. From the Middle East to climate change, we know the sort of things that the international community should be doing in order to find a solution and a sustainable solution. It's the political will to do those things which is lacking. Secondly, and it's not, you may think, a very heroic observation to make, but the man with the sandwich brought board saying that the end of the world is nigh has never been right in the past. Um, you may remember uh, Dennis Healy's joke about the man in Rio who walked around with a placard saying, buy my pills uh, and prevent the end of the world. And somebody said to him, what do you mean? Um, buy your pills. It's a crazy idea. So the guy with the sandwich board says, well, what's, what's the alternative? Um, usually, we've managed, even when uh, dealing with the biggest problems, we've managed to find a way in which we can muddle through. And I hope that's true today, though occasionally um, uh, one leave, loses uh, some faith in the ability of uh, humanity to manage its affairs rather more competently. 
I started with a line from a Samuel Beckett play, and I might end with one from a Tom Stoppard play. Um, one character says uh, to another, tomorrow, um, McKendrick is of course another day. And McKendrick replies, tomorrow in my experience is usually the same day. <laughs> and uh, let's hope that's true of the 20th century. Any questions? <laughs>